Hello, I'm Zeb Neuwirth, and welcome to Creating a New Healthcare, a podcast series for healthcare leaders who are interested in fresh perspectives, new ideas, bold solutions, and a renewed sense of meaning and purpose in their efforts to advance patient-centered, customer-oriented, value-based healthcare. Folks, the uh, views that I express on this podcast are solely my own and do not represent the views of any other person or organization that I may be affiliated with. Our focus today is on patient engagement, behavior change, and uh, digital behavioral medicine with a particular focus on chronic disease. We are uh, incredibly fortunate. I am so excited to have uh, a guest on the show, Sean Duffy. Sean uh, is uh, the co-founder and CEO of Amada Health, a digital behavioral medicine company uh, based in San Francisco. In uh, 2016, Amada was named a technology pioneer by the World Economic Forum, and in both 2015 and 2017, the company was recognized as one of Fast Company's most innovative companies. Sean has had uh, numerous accolades. He's uh, been in the San Francisco Business Times uh, 40 Under 40 list. Um, he's been on J.P. Morgan's list of the 100 Most Intriguing Entrepreneurs of uh, 2014. He's had uh, numerous uh, keynote speaking engagements, including at the World Economic Forum in Davos, the Clinton Global Initiative Health Matters Summit, South by Southwest, the J.P. Morgan Healthcare Conference, the New England Journal of Medicine Catalyst Forum, He's also written extensively about digital health and the future of healthcare in the Wall Street Journal, Forbes, Medgadget, TechCrunch, and other publications. Prior to uh, starting Amada, Sean worked at both Google and IDEO, a innovation design company. He is uh, a former MD, MBA candidate at Harvard, and he holds a bachelor's in neuroscience from Columbia University. Uh, Sean, I have to say that uh, as impressive as your resume is, it uh, doesn't quite do you justice and doesn't really live up to who you are, both as a professional pioneer and as a person. I, um, I uh, you know, first of all, I want to welcome, welcome you to the show. How are you doing? Oh, I'm awesome and, and honored to be here. It's uh, well, it's it's really my great honor. You know, I, I was thinking as I was uh, prepping for this podcast, uh, Sean, you and I have known each other for three or four years. A long time, yeah. yeah right? I mean, maybe it's four years or more. I think it's actually, yeah, I think it's more. I think it's four or five, actually. You know, you might be right. It's probably closer to five. And uh, I, I remember our, our good friend and colleague, uh, Greg Widener, introduced us. And uh, somewhere along the way, probably about three years or so ago, you were in Charlotte or passing through Charlotte. And um, uh, you, I, I remember you had dinner with us. And I don't remember if you stayed with us overnight with the family here. And, um, you know, what I do recall uh, really vividly is uh, how attracted my kids were to you. My son was probably about <laughs> seven or so, and my daughter was about eight or nine, and they were just fascinated yeah. with you. And, you know, uh, you, uh, you found out my son, Jacob, uh, is really into Legos, which he still is, into building Legos. And um, yeah. so you said to him, hey, I'm into Legos, too, and you guys were playing with the Legos, and then, then you sent him a box of Legos because you had, you had Legos you had been working on and, and no longer needed. So you you must have sent them one, two, three. I forget how many Legos kids. <laughs> and all I knew for months, you know, the kids were asking me, you know, when is Sean coming back? <laughs> oh, so funny. And Jacob, well, you, you, yeah. for, for a while, I have to tell you this. I don't think I ever tell you this. So Jacob, for a while, he wants to be a race car driver. 
And uh-huh. uh, for a while there, he actually gave that up, and he and he said, "I want to be what Sean is." And I explained to him, what oh, a trip. So <laughs> I said to him, "Well, Sean's an entrepreneur," and so I explained to them what what that was. And so for quite some time, they both wanted to be entrepreneurs. So, so I just oh, I, I, I think it's all to say for particularly for our listeners, um, Sean is just not only accomplished; he is uh, just such a, a, a decent human being. And so I, I just had to share that story with you. <laughs> he made such an impression. It's so funny. My, my wife always jokes that the uh, the outside world knows me as an entrepreneur and you know someone who was in medical school but then she, she knows me as a, a, a seven-year-old boy who liked legos at heart so you've, you've now you've now exposed me congratulations <laughs> well and, and, and folks you you heard it here on create a new healthcare right yeah exactly exactly breaking news <laughs> he's an eight-year-old at heart <laughs> no, no, much more than that but seriously you are such a great guy um so let me start by asking you, uh, and we'll get into uh, what Omada is and all that sort of stuff, but here you were, and I, I don't know that I've ever quite gotten the story. You you were at Harvard in medical school. I think you were working on MD, not only your MD, but also an MBA, mm-hmm. and you, know, you could have gone down the traditional path. I mean, you could have done anything you wanted to do, given your background with technology and you know your business uh, mindset. And, and you saw something, you experienced something, and you just had this, to me, just you know, from the outside, some shift uh, that you needed to, to do. And I don't know if it was just completely consistent with what you were wanting to do anyway, or it was a you know, divergent path that you went on. But what did you observe you know, when you were that young in, in medical school that made you say, there's something I got to work on? Yeah, you know, it's funny. So I've always been a bit of a tech geek, uh, you know, and healthcare geek at heart, um, and you know, graduated in, in 2006 and had, you know, had studied neuroscience and had done all my pre-med recs and, um, you know, was interested in medical school, but I would, I would just found that I was always reading tech blogs. So I ended up, uh, you know, just being drawn to technology, just thinking I had to scratch that itch, uh, worked in the Valley, uh, Google for a couple of years. And then, you know, very quickly realized that the world wasn't so binary that I might be able to do something that's a mix of tech and medicine. And, you know, even, even back then I wanted to do something entrepreneurial, you know, I always loved making things. And I had imagined that I would go off to medical school, become a primary care doc and perhaps build the Starbucks for primary care. It's kind of what I was thinking back then. It's a exceptionally tech forward healthcare practice, um, primary care practice. And, um, so, uh, you know, enrolled in the joint MD MBA program at Harvard. And then as you progress through that, they ask that you take an internship. That's somewhat of a mix of business and medicine. So, I had known from my time in the Valley some folks at IDEO and came out there. And in this funny chain of serendipity, it led to uh, Omada. And, you know, I would say looking back, um, it still does feel like a, you know, a big accident. But what made me excited about what we might be able to do is that, um, you know, one, the state of digital health in 2011 was, was really immature. I mean, it was just getting going. Um, and there was so much, so much promise yet. It just felt that in order for digital health to be adopted with open arms in the enterprise healthcare uh, community, uh, there had to be a very strong clinical basis. There had to be companies that were publishing studies that were basing what they do off real evidence. And that wasn't always the case back then. Um, in fact, it wasn't the case. So I uh, was on an internal project that, uh, you know, was really an exploration project of well, what, what might be done here that's new and different. And... Um, you know, I got really interested in, in frankly, the epidemiology of obesity-related chronic disease, and you know, thinking that um, 
this might be an area where digital is important because the evidence shows that you need a lot of touch points and intervention points along someone's journey to make any impact at all. And so, you know, there's this huge body of literature that I kind of dove into that showed the power of intensive programs and, you know, really lifestyle interventions that target a modest amount of weight loss, but done in the right way to reduce risk of disease progression. And, uh, you know, you just look at the trajectory that the country's on, the, the globe is on, you know, for the first time in human history, preventable chronic disease is killing more people than infectious. And then in all of these epi papers in the discussion section, you, you know, you just read a call to arms and, uh, they would always share, well, if only you could scale these interventions and they would typically caveat it by sharing that the interventions are not scalable. They're in person, they're people based. And, uh, you know, you started just, we started just unpacking what made those successful and felt conviction that one might be able to uh, build upon that evidence and create a, a, a digital program modeled off the best in class behavioral science that was shown to be effective. So, you know, funnily enough, that led to Amada. And, you know, it was one of those things where, you know, you just see this almost something that like starts to look like a wrong in the world and that it felt like every single clinician and practitioner mm-hmm. and, you know, folks that like were looking at guidelines here knew that the the right thing to do was to deploy a program like this yet it was for all these constraints just hadn't happened um and got excited about the the idea that we could do that at omada and then loved working with my co-founder and then you know the rest was kind of history you know, i asked med school for a year off and then two years off and then um six and a half years later uh you know here we are wow are they still holding a spot for you I don't think so. <laughs> I will occasionally come in and say hi, you know, in classes and, uh, you know, done. There's actually a, a case, um, uh, at Harvard Business School, uh, on Omada and I, I've come in for that. And the professor always jokes, it's in Bob Higgins class. And the professor always jokes, like, look, don't tell them that you never actually attended any of the business side of this. <laughs> so, yeah, but, but maybe, maybe, we, you know, who, who knows? Maybe, um, you know, in, in a, um, a later chapter in my life, I'll reapply and see if they'll take me. That's, well, you may actually end up teaching there the way uh, things are going and the way you're going. Uh, what, um, so, so you, you saw clearly uh, chronic disease is uh, epidemic, not just here in the United States, but globally. And the impact is clearly on people's lives and uh, the quality of their lives, but it's also, uh, tremendous financial impact, uh, right? The the World Health Organization has predicted within the next 10 or 12 years that uh, the costs of uh, healthcare will literally uh, equal uh, over 50% of all uh, global domestic global products. So, mm-hmm. you know, literally we will be working just to pay for healthcare is, is pretty much where we are on, on glide path towards in this country and across the globe. So big, big problem. You know, we're, we're going about it in the traditional ways we have with some minor modifications and tweaks. But what, um, h- how did you, you know, I think there were a couple inflections or, you know, in the, in the, in the construct that I use about reframing healthcare. You, mm-hmm. you saw things differently and there were a couple of profound changes. One of which is, uh, this issue of the, of the, uh, well, there's probably, three that come to mind immediately, and there are probably more, but the, the first you mentioned, which is this idea of really taking evidence-based medicine and and applying that, uh, and I'd like you to speak to that. The, the second one that I, I really am fascinated with is this profound inversion that you made in your mind years ago, um, which is 
probably coming to play itself out in, in healthcare, but the inversion mm-hmm. being that that we look at the face-to-face visit as the gold standard and, and everything else is sort of kind of like an add-on or a possibility or an adjunct, but but you didn't see it that way. You you saw the face-to-face visit as sort of the the thing of last resort, not the first thing. And so there let's just start with, with one of those two. I'm just particularly curious about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, so from an evidence-based, uh, you know, standpoint, um, you know, I mean, if you look at, if you look at the, the spend in the U.S. healthcare system, uh, you know, and, 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 and frankly, where, where that money goes, it's, you know, in large part designed to improve health, of course. I mean, you know, the, the reason that our healthcare system is so expensive is, is frankly, I think, you know, in part because of all the incredible innovations that help improve, improve health. And, um, you know, I mean, there's billions of ways the system needs to improve and incredible inefficiencies, but, um, uh, you know, that, that's, that's all of the spend. And, you know, and I think from an evidence-based standpoint, um, if you look at what, um, the system chooses to pay for, and I think chooses is a little bit of a passive word there, but what, what I guess you can make the case that it's worthy of, uh, you know, promoting and commercializing, you know, really re- requires an evidence base. I mean, you cannot, um, get through the gatekeeper of, gatekeeper of a medical director at a health plan, um, without many clinical trials showing your impact. Um, if you are not in alignment with, you know, where guidelines sit, you're going to be facing, you know, winds in your face that make it very, very difficult to have an impact. And so, you know, we, we knew that we needed to really ground ourselves in what the literature, literature sh- said in a way that digital health had not done. So, I mean, you know, that led to the Amata program and we started by designing a study and, and publishing outcomes. And now we have nine, uh, peer reviewed, uh, trials, um, and those have really allowed us to work in a very unique way. I mean, you know, at Omada, we contract, um, almost like a hospital. And, you know, sometimes I, I, you know, I ask people to think of us like an integrated practice unit for really early metabolic disease where, you know, we're, um, I don't know, the Mayo Clinic, the Cleveland Clinic, you know, you name, you name your specialty, you know, you know, hospital for special surgery, you name your provider where that is what we do, but it's just digital. So we file claims. Um, you know, we were able to get the American Medical Association to issue, a category three CPT code for our intervention for the first time um, in their history. They issued a digital specific code and, you know, all that has really stemmed from starting on an evidence base, uh, you know, which has been hugely important. And, and frankly, that evidence base led to that point of view in your second, um, you know, bit of commentary on, um, you know, in person as last resort, which, um, uh, you know, is something that I'm saying more, more frequently now. And, uh, you know, the, the feel, if you study the lit, is in this space is you need many, many touch points to get an outcome. Uh, you know, I mean, getting someone to work on their lifestyle and change behavior and lose a modest amount of weight requires so many touch points and so many interactions and such a high level of support and all of this incredibly rich surround sound of behavioral um, uh, levers. And you can get that in person, you know, no doubt. Uh, in fact, a lot of the, if not all of the literature before Amada um, supported not digital, but it supported in-person programs because you, you have that face-to-face contact. You feel supported. You feel kind of loved. There's clear goals. You get to see how other people are doing. Um, uh, yet the frequency upon which you need to connect with people means that it limits the, the, the A scalability because establishing physical infrastructure is incredibly hard. And then B limits the reach because asking Mary to go in for that eighth lesson in, you know, a center at 5 p.m. requires her to trade off, 
you know, going to her daughter's soccer practice or going to a health, you know, a health course. So, you know, it felt like digital had to be a solution here and people in increased frequency are living their lives, um, you know, in front of their screens and you have to meet them where they are. So that, that kind of, you know, they're actually, um, intertwined. That last point you made about the inconvenience of coming into for face-to-face visits. And I, I use the term sort of the gold standard of care and you've inverted that, uh, I think quite, quite seriously. The, the word I've heard you use to describe it is sort of sort of, and, and challenge my comment about the gold standard is let's take an intention to treat, uh, approach, right? And you've shared that with me, right? Where you say, well, look, if your intention is to treat a patient with diabetes or hypertension, part of the process is getting them in. And we know the challenge for people to come in. We know the issues of access and face-to-face, the inconvenience, the no-show rates, um, the lack of adherence. And so it may be that it's not the gold standard when it comes to intention to treat. And if you could make it more convenient mm-hmm. with more frequent touches that don't require that, uh, you know, as sort of a, a digital virtual encounter or encounters uh, where people are and meeting them where they are, where, when it's convenient for them, uh, you actually, that may actually, in fact, be the gold standard uh, for outcomes. Well, no, I mean, it's funny. That's, that is, uh, you know, geez, increasingly how I feel. And I, um, I, you know, I'm actually working kind of on, on a piece right now about the idea of in-person as last resort where, you know, I mean, I think the, the, the system was designed based on the constraints of the time. And, um, you know, there will always be a need for a lot of in-person care in the healthcare system. But, you know, I think if the, the world of healthcare thinks of that as the option after which you've exhausted a safe, efficient, effective way to get the person's needs solved without, you know, making them drive in. It expands not only access to the care that's needed, but the relationship with the system, because you just know that, you know, if you're having to tell your boss at work that you've got to take half the day off for an appointment, that it's, that it's, you know, it's, it's, and then it's actually a necessity. Um, and, you know, I think that the, that's part of the digital transformation we're going through. I mean, it's funny, you know, I was um, looking at some statistics as part of this and the, um, you know, right before the ACA passed, um, the mobile, the percent of mobile phones that were smartphones was 17%. Now it's 81%. So even between when the ACA passed and now, there's been such an incredible explosion of the ability to deploy kind of rich digital digital interactions, you know, right where people are. Um, and it's happened at such a quick pace that that pace that it's happened is, you know, typically far faster than, than the constraints of the healthcare system can move. Um, but you, you kind of see it. I think in a beachhead world, the, the future is, of our system is being pulled in that direction, um, uh, you know, which will take time, but I think it's, it's the right move. That is, I think that's a really important point. And I hadn't actually quite realized how quickly the world is becoming digital and and the use of smartphone technology. And, you know, you're right. It's moved and it's shifted so rapidly and continues to shift so rapidly that a, we're not aware of it. And I think in healthcare and, and B, we're not adapting to it. So still at this point, there is no question in healthcare in the United States, uh, which is clearly one of the most advanced uh, healthcare countries in the world, although our outcomes aren't, but technology is still, we look at, at the face-to-face visit as 
the way it should be and the way people want it and the way, you know, way you get optimal outcomes. And clearly in the last five to seven years, the world has changed and, and people are moving increasingly to digital. You know, I was reading an article. I don't know if you've heard this term, Generation C. Have you heard that? No, I haven't. Oh, uh, you'd, you'd, you'd love this. And, and, and I think so with the listeners. So, uh, I'm, I'm blanking on the, the name of the guy, but if you look up Generation C, it's, it's, uh, the generation of, of the connected consumer. Mm-hmm. And that's what the C stands for, connected consumer. And, and the point of this uh, thesis is that, Generation C is is not a demographic, so it's not the millennials, mm-hmm. uh, the, the generation Y or Xers. It's people of all ages. It's all backgrounds. It's all socioeconomic uh, demographics. It's all ethnicities, and uh, it's just people who are increasingly connected, uh, uh, and and expect a, con- a, a customer experience that is digital, mm-hmm. and they're connected through that. Whether it's you know Facebook or Twitter. Uh, or LinkedIn, uh, you know, w- whatever your connection is, that's where you get entertainment, communication. Mm-hmm. Yep. And part of, part of the C's is also curated. So you're, you're participated in creating it. You know, it's like getting your news. You, your news is now, you know, curated mm-hmm. by people like you or, or other people that are, are saying this is important. You should, you should be listening to this. So I think it, it, that whole Generation C concept is what you're talking about, that it rapidly we are becoming, all of us, uh, the generation of the connected consumer who wants, you know, to be connected digitally and wants the information curated and convenient. So there's these, these this, this is, you know, supporting exactly what you're saying. Yeah. And, you know, funny, like if you look at a lot of the innovative companies, um, you know, over the last, at least the last five years in the, in the kind of mobile phone space and in tech space, I mean, it's been, it's been frankly the folks that kind of lift up um, industries that don't have that sort of consumer experience and kind of bring them to the expectations of this, you know, as, as kind of the article states, generation C where, uh, you know, I mean, you look at, you know, the lifts of the world, the Ubers of the world, uh, you know, like all the, all the folks where they make getting something done in your life easier through the use of technology. It's, that's really what they're doing. And healthcare, you know, is not there yet. I think the, you know, I think there's a huge opportunity for the provider systems, you know, of tomorrow to, to, to get there and can, you know, I think if they do it right, the ones that do it right can be massively differentiated. Mm-hmm. You know, the other thing, and you kind of going back a couple of minutes with what you were saying, I think folks would find it surprising that, you know, a digital, you know, medicine or digital behavioral medicine company, you know, tech company would be talking about CPT codes or would be talking about, um, you know, publishing uh, peer-reviewed uh, studies but you you really have gone into the core, and so you're not on the fringe. It's not, you know, just a cool technology. You're really saying this is the delivery of medicine, and we're going to treat it as such, and and we're going to you know hold ourselves to those kinds of standards. Now, your program was actually built, though your initial program in Amada, the Prevent program for prediabetes, was built on the National Diabetes Prevention Program, which is a multi-year study done by, initiated by the CDC and, and conducted by the NIH, as far as I recall. And so this was probably one of the most evidence-based pieces of work that you built your program on. Is that, am I capturing that correctly? Yeah, I mean, that, that's right. I mean, there, the, you know, some fabulous researchers set an incredible foundation of in-person Proof that this 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 sort of uh, you know this category of intervention intervention can can uh, you know create a clinical outcome that's meaningful to a patient and and the you know the healthcare system uh, writ large. So they you know they set a wonderful table for us to build our own evidence on top. I mean you know we wouldn't be able to go into um, 
you know, a, a chief medical officer at a health plan and say, remember that trial, we promise we do the same thing or we promise, we, you know, our program works. We've got to publish our own studies too. But that's, that's, you know, that, that's helped a lot. And it's helped with, um, you know, what we've always felt is a no shortcuts rule because as innovative as we want to be and, you know, and, and as tech forward as we want to be and the engineers that we pluck from these consumer companies. And, you know, I've always felt if you didn't grapple with, um, you know, increasingly what I call the, the laws of physics of the existing healthcare system, I think you'll be hard pressed to find impact. And, you know, it doesn't matter if some of those laws of physics are painful and you're dealing with sometimes antiquated infrastructure or complex regulatory landscapes, they are the laws of physics and you can't violate them and you have to figure out how to work with them. So, um, uh, you know, a lot of my, my kind of brain over the last six and a half years is just getting as smart as I can on all these various intricacies of which there are so many in healthcare to figure out kind of the way to bring OMADA through them successfully to make an impact. Right, and I know in, in in reading some of your other uh, writings and interviews, you you talk deeply about the regulatory environment, the billing environment, the quality and safety environment. So, I mean, you sound like a uh, chief medical officer or CEO of uh, of uh, any sort of clinic. I mean, this is it's. I mean, that's what's so. I mean, you've kind of reframed the reframe, which I I just. Uh, <laughs> We got a trademark. I like that. <laughs> yeah. oh. I, I will. No, it's funny. You know, you know, we contract and we contract as a weirdly kind of like a hospital. I mean, we contract as a covered entity. Um, and, and, you know, we can work with vendor paper and health plans and make sure that it's in compliance with HIPAA. But, um, preferentially we'll contract under their provider paper, which always causes them to scratch their heads a bit. And, you know, we go to a plan. We're like, actually, you know what? That's that same, that same contracting organization that sets up contracts with Stanford Hospital. That's who you should put us in touch with. And they're like, huh? Because I don't, you know, but I don't, and I don't think the, I was like, yes, we're digital, but it's, here's the reasons. And, you know, Omada's like chief privacy officer was the former, you know, chief privacy officer of health and human services. And, um, you know, it's, it, it is, it is different, but it works. And, you know, and once people understand, you know, like, like how we operate, they, they get it, but it's, um, it is very unusual. I mean, to the, to, to our knowledge, um, we're the or, only organization in the U.S. healthcare system that's, that's been able to do that. Mm. Now, so, the, the, you know, here's where you're, you know, going right into the belly of the beast and, and you know, doing exactly, like you said, the laws of physics and healthcare delivery and following the rules and just, you know, doing it exactly like a hospital or, or, or you know, other healthcare provider would. But, Quite divergently, and I, I'm going to read some words that I've uh, heard you and read the way you describe uh, how you're trying to design healthcare. And you do have a strong design background, not just a tech background. Uh, and, you know, you're talking about an experience. And again, this goes to the Generation C, you know, the connected consumer uh, who wants convenience and, and everything uh, else in terms of, of the direction of, of consumerism and, and experience. Uh, here's how you describe how healthcare should be. It should be interesting, neat, simple, valuable, easy, delightful, playful, fun. Now, for myself and for the listeners, do any of those words ring true for our healthcare experience to date? And for you, Sean, um, interesting, neat, yeah. easy, delightful, fun, playful. That, is that, is that, I mean, is that possible? I mean, can you create a healthcare that that does that and also also delivers on on what people want in terms of you know healthier being healthier and the outcomes 
Yeah, you know what's funny. I mean, I I think so. I think the you know I think the um, now healthcare is you know is serious. It's very emotional, especially if you're you know you're facing a very serious health consequence. Like you don't want you know your experience with healthcare to you know if you're you've just been diagnosed with cancer to be like oh you know like telling you jokes on the way in like the um but but you can what you can do is consumerize it and and I think that that term is so. Um, misused or misunderstood or um you know it's 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 not um the way the way that i view it is really frankly the level of the the interaction with the system where you know i mean if you take primary care as a for instance i think the the primary care um relationship that would allow you to feel trust and safety and you know kind of incredible sense of knowledge was you know in in the history of medicine with a doctor, right? You know, a doctor was expected to know, you know, know everything. And now you look at like today's world and all of the bits and pieces that have to stitch together in the massive complexities. And, you know, you have less of le- less and less of that. And, you know, and, and the, the systems themselves are not set up to take on the operational burden of solving those complexities for a person. Um, which, you know, there are other areas and other industries, which that is the case. I mean, they invest millions and millions of dollars to make it so that the organization, through rigorous unpacking of a consumer's pain solves all those pain points. And it's so tough to do in, you know, to do in healthcare. Now, I think that, I think it is possible, you know, in the future where your, your feel with, um, you know, of, of trust, safety, um, you know, ease with the system can, can be with a brand where, um, uh, you know, you have this, brand affinity with a health system you when you have a problem you know you kind of open up a ticket and it gets routed and readily solved and you know you're brought in if needed and there's just you know it's really thought of the user experience kind of first and i think that 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 um you know that level of focus on thinking as an organization if you're serving a patient how do you do it um with the least pain on the journey on the patient side no, and, and, and relentlessly invest operationally from a technology standpoint to take that burden in-house so that the, the consumers are not, which a lot of consumer companies do. That needs to be done in healthcare. Yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, I was just thinking as you were talking about this, the, you know, the connection with the, with the physician and how we, that's been sort of the anchor and, um, you know, and I suspect it will be, especially in complex chronic disease and, and more intense than for sure in, in procedural issues. But, uh, you know, I was thinking, kind of going back to this issue of the experience uh, and thinking about relationships I have, uh, so many of which are actually not face-to-face, so many of which are digital. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and yet I feel so, so close to people that I've never actually encountered. And um, it, it's just... Uh, it, and, and even, you know, our yep. patients experience where, uh, we've, we've seen patients say, you know, I, I love my doctor yep. and yet they've never seen their doctor. You know, it's, they've never seen their doctor. Yep. It's, exactly. they love something, um, that is represented yeah. by their experience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and they trust them, oh, yeah, right? Sure. They, because there's the, there's the contact, there's the response, there's, you know, you build trust over pieces of, of experience and episodes of, yep. And, and, uh, so I've seen this over and over again, even our, in our experience with virtual digital care, it's, um, you know, I think the world is changing and, and we are having an affinity for, uh, experience that is different than it was before. It just, 
it is, I, you know, I'm not sure that I know how to explain it. And I'm sure there are sociologists and no, you know, sure. behaviorists who, who have studied this and are studying this now, but it's, it's different, right? No, no. Well, it's funny. I mean, you, you know, I think the, like, it, it is interesting. We're in an interesting time where that's possible because if you think of like, you know, if you try to take what you're feeling and deconstruct it into its component parts of like what enabled that, um, uh, you know, and, and what makes it so readily easy in person, you know, it's, it's, there are visual cues, you know, getting to see the person, you know, communication cues, um, you know, feeling like they understand you. Right. And, you know, in all of these like elements, um, I think for the first time in history can be, can be constructed at high enough fidelity on the other end of an internet connection that it's possible to create a feeling of support from afar, which, you know, which is hugely important in healthcare. Um, uh, you know, I mean, I think that's, it's, it, you know, healthcare is an industry where the ability to create a sense of trust with the consumer is probably more important than almost any other. Yeah, absolutely. One, one, uh, other sort of, I, I remember the first time I, I met you again, going back a few years and, and listening to you explain your, uh, first program, your prevent program for prediabetes based on the national diabetes prevention program. I remember, and I don't recall if you remember my saying this to you, I think it was one of the first things I said after you, you, you shared the program, which I, I would love you to do in a moment, but I'd like you to frame it this way. One of the, again, one of the hallmarks of what you've been building with your, with your colleagues is about chronic disease, uh, early chronic disease. It's about behavior, behavior change, behavior modification, sustaining that. So what are, what are the tools that you use that are particularly enhanced? And I think this is the other advantage of the digital world, uh, in terms of actually helping people change their behaviors and sustain those change behaviors. So, and maybe you could use your programs to Mm -hmm. illustrate that. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, you know, um, you know, as you shared, um, uh, you know, we have a program now, it's called just the Omada program. Um, and you know, for, uh, you know, prediabetes, but also, you know, increasingly for really just early metabolic disease where someone's weight has caught up to them to the point where it's causing, you know, problems in their body and the guidelines support intervention through a very kind of behaviorally forward program. Um, you know, and what I always start with is what I've, what I've started to call the single instrument fallacy where you, um, you know, if you look at the history of digital health, I think there was sometimes a view that there would be a silver bullet. And, you know, one instrument would be enough. You know, you mail someone a scale and show them a chart. You hook them up with a tracker, a step tracker. You know, you have them, you know, use an app to track their food. You give them some great, really rich and interesting content. Um, you know, you allow people to connect to one another, put them on a social forum, kind of a chat room. Or, you know, you hook them up with a health coach to, to guide them. And, you know, all of those in on their own um, are not powerful enough. Um, and there's actually, you know, there's studies to support that. There've been like trials done and randomized trials done in, in a lot of these categories. And, um, uh, it was very tough to get outcomes yet. You, you know, you, if you, if you assume that to move someone toward, um, uh, you know, a lifestyle intervention endpoint, you need an experience that that's emotionally moving and meaningful. It's not too different than a symphony. And you, you know, you literally, you can't imagine that Beethoven could create the fifth and have it feel the way it does with just the bassoonist. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, you need the other instruments and you also just cannot have the instruments play at the same time. They have to play on a, you know, there has to be a score. You have to play them uh, in the right moment on the right period of time. So, you know, it, it, and that's rare in software. It's funny. It's funny. I mean, you know, just today we were reflecting on the fact that 
one of the amazing opportunities and, you know, the challenges that we always have is our code base is on a clock where, you know, someone logs in and, you know, they're at week six and the, you know, the code knows that and knows to show them something different, you know, new lessons unlocked, like there's a different experience for that person at that point in time. Um, that's so different than the classic, um, uh, you know, software, uh, that, that is, that most commonly, you know, is, is used by people. You don't have a, you know, there's no element of temporality. Hmm. And, you know, I think like those, those, those are the, you know, those are the things that I think make, make Omada's program, you know, unique and our approach unique. And, you know, it's all those little bitty ingredients, um, that I think, you know, we want to continue to hone, continue to use to improve, continue to use to personalize. And, you know, what I always say about our program is this will never be done. I mean, because behavior is so complex, because everyone is unique, and even though some of the fundamentals will hold with everybody, you know, timelines, shared goals, peer groups, um, you know, a little bit of facilitation hierarchy, um, you know, reference points, measures of success, kind of passive data coming in, like a lot of those ingredients will be consistent for everybody. You really do need to personalize. So, you know, when I talk about the program, I say it's never something that you'll put in the oven, set a timer, hear a ding, and call it a day. Um, you know, you're, you're through data going to constantly need to improve, um, you know, these sorts of, uh, interventions. So, so you, so you have, and I think that's a really great point in, in the, uh, non-digital world, uh, you can launch an intervention or two, but it, they're really, you know, kind of individual, you know, like you were saying, even if you have a care manager or coach, there's, there's ones, there's a limited number of things going on, but in the digital world, you have the option to have a, an orchestra of, uh, timed, uh, applied mm-hmm. programs that come in and come out and continuous and continue that support for behavior change. So in, in, in your program, in your Amada program, could you, uh, give a few examples of those digital applications of this orchestrated, you know, yep, yeah, sure. multimodal behavior change program? Oh yeah, for sure. So the, um, you know, firstly, the way it works is, um, you know, we tell people that it exists, it's on their, you know, benefits design, you know, they should find out if they're eligible. Um, you, you know, we market it in a way that makes it feel interesting and neat and, you know, very consumer forward experience. Then we, um, get people some hardware. So we mail them a scale and a welcome kit that has a cell phone chip in it. You know, uh, someone steps in it, the data's in the system, you know, there's no headache, no pairing with Wi-Fi networks, no pairing with smartphones. It just works over the cellular network. Then we take people, we match them into small groups based on uh, location demographics. We pair those groups with a health coach that's an OMADA employee trained to really facilitate these sort of groups. Um, and we kick folks off on a Sunday, uh, set a destination postcode of 16 weeks. So everybody has a clear sense of time and, you know, what they're, what the work they're working to achieve is over on that period of time. And then, you know, week by week, we're unlocking lessons and like his lessons are in different topic areas and contain these, you know, little areas for input, kind of little games. Like, and there's whole kind of like orchestra of things that, you know, uh, uh, you know, really happen along the way. So it's, you know, all of that, all of those independently are examples of kind of the core tenets of the program. But from a personalization standpoint, um, it's getting really exciting here because we started with, you know, the levers of personalization, which would be, you know, different sort of curriculum. So we, you know, we had like a low literacy curriculum. If we identified that that might be a better fit for you, you know, the coaches were able to personalize in kind of new ways. And, you know, the, you know, right now, because we now have like 24 million weight readings, um, um, uh, you know, from all the participants in our program, um, you know, we're able to do these experiments where we'll try these sub, 
um, you know, interventions and changes and, and see if it worked for what people and, and why. And, um, uh, you know, it's been super fascinating and, you know, there's been a lot of, uh, you know, we're like matching groups differently and looking, you know, at the outcomes. We're, um, looking at demographic kind of trade wins and seeing if that's something that, you know, we should, you know, use to do uh, kind of different things for the, for different folks. We're, um, uh, you know, our health coaches are getting so much smarter. You know, when, when someone comes into the program, you can see in real time what kind of normal is for them from a data standpoint. And if something, looks off, you know, if someone was weighing in three times every week and now they're, you know, weighing in once or, or not at all, you can surface that to the coach really quickly. Um, uh, so, you know, I mean, it's, it's, I think we've like something like 30 or 40 experiments running on and, you know, running on at any given one moment and collectively each one of these contributes to, um, uh, you know, working toward the goal of the ideal recipe to deliver the right intervention for the right person at the right time. You know, as, Sean, as I hear you talk, so I've got this picture in my mind of what we are doing now, pretty much the predominant mode of behavior change and our practices across the country and across the world. And then I hear you talk and the advantages, both in terms of intention to treat and convenience and access and participation and behavior change and sustainability and cost and and it just the picture that comes to mind is we're still we're riding a horse and buggy and you have a car and i you know it's it's almost it almost leaves me a little breathless uh and and i guess the question is what you know you've had this vision for quite some time you're manifesting it i mean even the last thing you just talked about which is the experiments you could run with the data and, and customize care and improve care in ways that cannot happen in the analog model of care that we are currently deploying. So even that alone, you know, I mean, now you're, you know, you're in, in more than a car. And so what, I mean, this is, you've been doing this for a while. What are some of the you know, the challenges, how, you know, what's the time frame? What's the movement? Are we, is this going to happen in, you know, are we going to see this yeah. transition in the next three years, five years? I'm just, you know, someone who's been doing this and you're working so diligently to be, um, embed yourself in the system and, and follow all the rules and regulations and, and the quality and safety and the outcomes and the research and, and the coding and billing and all that. But, you know, you, you must have frustrations and challenges with the enterprise legacy system of care. What can you share where you are with that? What well, is it? You know, it is a challenging environment, uh, you know, to build a, build a business in, especially if you're building something entirely new where there's no, you know, you're different. There's no like tried and true commercialization model. Um, you know, you're charting new territory. Um, uh, so, so from a tech side, what excites me is, you know, I really think we're at the equivalent of the ether dome moment for behavioral medicine and, and, you know, for the non-medical listeners, um, in the mid 1800s, you know, ether was, you know, really innovated as an, uh, you know, an anesthetic for surgery. You could put some, you could put someone to sleep, um, you know, for the first time. And, you know, what happened, that new technology came in and what happened was it actually massively transformed the discipline of surgery because it opened up 
an incredible array of what you could operate on. I mean, it, you know, really catalyzed surgery into what it is today. And I think the, in the world of behavioral medicine, the, the technology and perhaps even more importantly, the ways that people use technology and the data that, that kind of drips off that usage, um, is really the ether for behavioral medicine. Because for the first time, you can measure in new ways. You can innovate in new ways. You can try new things. You can study some of those things that are really unanswered questions. You can personalize and, you know, and that's, that, that's transformative for the for the category, and I you know I think I remember it's, it's incredibly exciting the the wave that's going to come out in in the space where um, uh, connections need to be tied from behaviors to to health, and so the the question is always okay, well if that is the case, how do you fit it into the existing model? And you can't expect that the infrastructure and the commercialization pathways to just change. Um, you have to figure out how to kind of work with what you've got. Um, and, you know, that the old uh, kind of, a, you know, Apollo 13 scene where they're working to create the, the CO2 filter mm-hmm. that needs to um, fit in a square hole from a round capsule, like using all the parts on board, that's sometimes like we feel where, uh, you know, I mean, we bill on, on an outcomes basis uh, with Omada and, um, I, you know, we use fee-for-service claims infrastructure to do it where we've kind of figured out a way to make that happen with these little like CPT modifiers and creating like, you know, a maximable, maximum allowable, you know, uh, billable payment on that claim. And it's, um, you know, that's you're using legacy fee-for-service infrastructure to charge on a value basis, right? Um, uh, y- you know, we were able to, figure out how to operate under provider contracts, even though we're digital, um, you know, and all of these things took significant diligence, infrastructure, um, you know, investments, um, you know, regulatory investments to make sure we're doing it in the right way. And, 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 and frankly, a lot of explaining because we're so, we're such a kind of unique thing um, in the healthcare system and the way that we operate mm-hmm. that, uh, you know, it's, it requires a lot of conversations and education and once people understand it, you know, they, they, they get it, but it's not, um, you know, it's, it's never easy. And I think the, the, uh, you know, I was reading some industry, you know, analysis that was the, the target audience on this analysis was for entrepreneurs and it was looking at complexity of industries and, you know, you had finance, you know, which was hugely more complex than the, the second beyond, you know, behind that. And then you had, you know, by almost an order of magnitude, and then you had healthcare, which was like two or three orders of magnitude, according to whatever, you know, heuristic they used to, to measure complexity above, above finance. So there's, you know, you have to consider all stakeholders, you have to consider all, you know, academic societies, you have to consider the different kind of regulators, both at the state level, the national level. You have to consider infrastructure. Every single state requires its own approach from a go-to-market standpoint. Like every single book of business has its own different dynamics. And, um, you know, I, I really think that you, there's no, um, again, no shortcuts rule. You just have to, you know, be very, very curious, um, you know, very humble. And I think the, the other thing that's important, I think for technologists, you know, though I, though I had a medical background, I didn't know anything about how the business of medicine worked, but I think technologists generally, um, are best served by approaching healthcare um, with a with a deep sense of humility because and you know there are so many incredibly smart passionate people that that have figured out how to operate in, inside these systems and you know you can't come in with hubris thinking oh well I, I you know clearly know you know everything here and know the right way to do things like that won't work you have to come in understand the lay of the land understand the actual physics and then figure out how to operate with inside those what are you what are you most proud of 
in the past, what is it, six years or so that you've been building Omada and creating this digital behavioral medicine approach and company? I mean, there's a set of things. It's so fun. I mean, I was just um, really neat. I was, you know, on Tuesday, this last Tuesday, doing a business review with one of our, our big health plan customers and you know, incredible, going to incredible work together. And I was spending some time with the chief medical officer and you know, what he shared was I was a huge skeptic of digital and Omada has proven everything wrong with my previous beliefs. Mm. And you know, that was so powerful. It was really neat to see. And you know, the geez, first time in history, AMA issues a digital specific CPT code. I mean, that's, you know, that's incredible. The, the whole, industry we're in, I, you know, I think didn't exist before Amada. Now people kind of know the term DPP in the market, um, which stands for diabetes prevention program. Uh, you know, I think that didn't exist. Um, you know, first, co- you know, first company that's formed a partnership with the American medical association. Um, you know, like all of those things are really great. And, you know, so, so, uh, you know, so deeply proud of kind of the, the, the team and, and company for doing that. I mean, you created the concept of what we sometimes call digital therapeutic. That's, you know, now that, that you hear that at conferences, there's also crazy, but, but frankly, I mean, all that's nice, but the, um, the, the neatest thing is we've just, we're starting to really hit scale. I mean, you know, you, if you come into the model office, like we have a big monitor on the wall and it has, you know, it shows 20, four million weight readings and you can in real time see people stepping on their scales and you know we roll about 130,000 people into the program um you know still feel like we're at the starting line for the impact that we need to have uh you know in the healthcare system but but each and every one of those people that have enrolled um you know they were likely heading down a bad path and they were not offered what would be clinically deemed the right solution for them um and you know that always at the end of the day gives you the determination to kind of grapple with some of the things that are in your way when you try to build an enterprise healthcare company. And, you know, it's just really, it's just really neat. It feels like, um, such a unique time in the healthcare system and, you know, such, such a unique honor to, to go to bat, to try to make digital more readily adopted. You know, I, I have to ask this as we were talking, I just, you know, the, the, the question also, of course, uh, and, and is, you know, does it work? Right. And so are you seeing, are you seeing the outcomes and results that you expect? I mean, you've published, so uh, I know you have the answer to that question. Oh yeah, I mean, absolutely. Now we have nine, you know, nine studies. We've looked, we've looked at um, two-year data, three-year data published. We've got um, data, you know, up to a year and sixty-five plus. We did this really cool paper with Humana where um, we saw kind of some new outcomes that we hadn't seen before. We actually saw a depression outcome, um, which was really neat. Um, did a study with the VA where. Uh, you know, it was run alongside an in-person program and, you know, really showed, um, uh, you know, comparable results to the best that they could do in person, which was fabulous. Um, you know, when we work with our provider customers, um, uh, you know, we always tell them to come in skeptics and then they start looking at the data and they're like, oh my gosh, it, you know, wow, it does work. Um, so, you know, now, you know, it's really easy for us to see. I mean, we, we have 24 million waivers. You can drop them all on a scatter plot. Um, it, you know, and of course it doesn't work for everybody. You know, you, um, everything's on a distribution and no behavioral medicine program is perfect, but, but, you know, you see it and you see the mean and medians, um, you know, to many, many years being effective. Um, uh, you know, which is, you know, which is neat. And not only, not only do we see it working, we kind of know now demographically who it works best for and what kind of, you know, wins will matter if you're entering the program. You know, older people counterintuitively tend to do better 
than younger people. You know, I mean, we're learning just so much about what it means to, to build this program, um, and all the different things that might, you know, help you or hurt you based on, uh, you know, geez, your, your age, your demographics, you know, your, your kind of social context, you name it, you name it. And, and you mentioned a couple of times now that you, you're working with health plans. So it, are, are you finding in, in the stakeholder market that your primary customer is the health plan? And if so, why, or, or who else would you include? Well, well, we, we work and have conversations going in, in basically all categories of, of risk, you know, so in the public side, there's, you know, Medicare, obviously we're very politically active. There's a, a big discussion happening in DC around these, you know, creating a benefit for these sorts of programs for Medicare, um, you know, Medicaid, we have like seven Medicaid demonstrations going on to generate some data. There were a clinical trial going on in Medicaid, um, you know, on the private side, um, you know, a lot of our enrollments, in fact, the most have come from marketing campaigns that will run in concert with self-insured employers yet, you know, we preferentially hold the contract and work with their health plan that administers their benefit. So, um, uh, you know, the, the question is, you, have, you always have to unpack, well, who's, who's carrying the risk for that person? That's kind of question one. And then question two is, how do you tell them that this exists and actually get them in to make impact? So, um, you know, I would say that our payer partners are kind of the preference, our preference for where we hold the contracts. Um, you know, and, and our employer partners are, are kind of have been our preference, um, uh, at least where we've seen kind of the biggest impact for how we get people get people into the program. And, and in terms of the provider side, uh, I, I can imagine some providers wondering if you're competition for them or, or, you know, are you augmenting what providers can do? How do you explain that? I think we're, we're, you know, I think we're augmenting it. I think that was an unopened and unanswered question when we first started. You know, I was actually not even sure how, like, the internal medicine or PCP community would react. But what we have found is, you know, they realize that the person needs a lot of touch points over a long period of time to make an impact. Um, you know, the, it's, it's, it is painful. I mean, my friends are now, you know, my friends that are practicing family medicine docs are, they, they, they really, it hurts them to, you know, send someone who's clearly heading toward diabetes out the door with maybe a referral to, you know, a nutritionist or maybe, you know, may at best, or maybe some, you know, curriculum or, you know, just a suggestion to lose weight. So we've, we've actually felt it really complements the, the medical kind of world. And we're almost like a new specialist, right? We're, you know, we're a, you know, if you're a PCP and someone comes up and, you know, you're looking at a mole that looks, um, uh, you know, perhaps, um, uh, you know, cancerous and you're worried about it, you'd refer out to a, you know, a specialist there, right? So, you know, we're, we're a specialist and we've never, you know, actually, frankly, every single time we've done a study or the work that we've done with providers, you know, we work, we work in, you know, in, um, in partnership with Kaiser in a number of regions, we have a really cool thing going on with Intermountain. Um, and you know, every time we've spun one of those up, the, the clinicians that are partners, you know, with Omada and helping that person, um, have come back and be like, uh, wow, how do I get this to more patients? So we, we, you know, we, we, we've not, we've not felt that. No, I, I, that makes a lot of sense that it is very complimentary. And I, I love that idea that it's, it's a referral. It's a specialty in, you know, in, in behavioral medicine and it's actually digital behavioral medicine. So boy, I have so many questions, but I, I, I know we're, we're, we need to draw to a close at least this time. Um, couple of quick questions. One is, what does a model look like in five years? Um, uh, well, I'd say we're still going to be doing our, our core. We may have other things, you know, adjacencies, who knows? There, there, you know, there's a bunch of question marks on where else we might go. But, but we're, you know, we want to remain um, hungry 
to, you know, to innovate. And what I always, I always, you know, when I paint a five-year vision of the company, I always say that like, look, we're, you know, we're written into the benefits design of 70% of insured Americans, you know, should you be clinically eligible and should you need it? You know, that's kind of step one. Um, you know, that's a mark of success. You know, step two, we're, you know, at a place where we're enrolling over a million people a year, you know, into the program, uh, you know, that's a measure of success. Three, uh, you know, epidemiologists of tomorrow, um, you know, if they look at the data, they might see kind of a slight bend in, in, you know, obesity related chronic incidents occurring at that moment in time. Uh, you know, thanks to Amada, you know, another measure is you regularly every month, you know, through a friend of a friend hear of somebody that's been positively impacted, uh, you know, from the Amada program. And then, um, uh, you know, and then last, but, you know, not least is, you know, in broad strokes across the healthcare system, uh, you know, practice for what we as a country do to help people with early, you know, metabolic disease and obesity related chronic actually it, it abides by guidelines. I mean, if you look at, you know, these 11 out of 11 relevant society guidelines are in remarkable alignment on what should be done with a patient with, you know, early metabolic and they should, you know, they should be referred into these sorts of programs yet, yet because there's not, you know, that second step right now, and it's not always, you know, most commonly reimbursed, et cetera, that's not happened. And, you know, and Sometimes I think about the simple mm-hmm. version of Omada's mission is just to close that gap between what everybody knows should happen and what, what is actually happening. That's great. Last question. What was the best piece of advice you were ever given? Oh, it's funny. I mean, I would say as an entrepreneur, it's the, um, it's, it's, it's one, I'll, I'll give I'm kind of, the, I, they tie together, but one, like every, every overnight success is 10 years of extraordinary work. Um, uh, because it's very hard work building a company. I mean, you're, you're fighting gravity, you're willing something into being. Um, and, and then second, it's, you know, at the end of the day, if you ask, you know, 10 out of 10, out of 10 successful, you know, CEOs, what's the number one thing that got him, got him, you know, him or her there and the company there? Um, it'd be determination and grit. And, and never giving up. And I actually, like, the more I look at what it, you know, what it takes, not, you know, not just in our space, but just kind of, you know, entrepreneurship generally, it's, you know, you got to find a problem where you, you feel so compelled to solve it that you just, you like, you just feel relentless about it, that you have to make it happen or get, you know, if it doesn't just give every single ounce of your soul, um, to, to, to make it happen. And I think that that, you know, that, that at the end of the day is, is kind of this, the weirdly almost the secret. You just never, you know, if you just never give up, um, and make sure that you're solving uh, something valuable. Um, you know, it, it can happen. So that's great. Sean, I, I have, uh, so many more questions to ask you. I'm hoping we'll have a chance to do this again, uh, in the near future. Um, so I can't thank you enough. Um, your inspiration. Um, I mean, you've, you know, again, every time I talk to you, it's, I see the world anew and I really understand that we are, not only that it's, we have to, uh, and then sometime in the future, we're going to create a new healthcare, but I, you know, we are creating a new healthcare. You are creating a new healthcare. And so, uh, just a, a real privilege and pleasure to speak to you. Oh yeah. No, thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, you know, it's so fun to be on, uh, you know, the, the podcast and, um, uh, you know, always just right back at you. Just love, love the conversations. Thanks. And, and folks who are listening, um, I want to thank you all for being part of this podcast and, um, uh, you know, you're doing the work, the hard work each and every day, taking care of patients. You're on uh, your own hero's journey. 
Uh, so uh, I'm hoping that you'll uh, let me know what you think about this podcast, and uh, I'll be giving you some contact information in the next uh, couple of podcast series here. So this is Zeb Newworth. You've been listening to Create a New Healthcare, and I'm wishing you all good health and uh, good living. <laughs>